Hello, this is Richard Gillis, and you're listening to the Unofficial Partner podcast. Unofficial Partner is where we overthink the sports business, and each week we talk to interesting people from inside and outside the industry about what they do and why they do it. If you're someone who has an interesting story to tell, or if you know someone that would make a good podcast guest, do get in touch, either via richard at unofficialpartner.co.uk or to my partner in this caper, Sean Singleton. He's Sean at the same address. You can contact us via the website unofficialpartner.com. Today we're lucky to be joined by Paul Hawksby on the podcast, who's one of the busiest broadcasters in sport, fresh from his day job as host of the long-running Hawksby and Jacobs show on TalkSport, place he's occupied since the very beginning of that station in 2000. Paul's had a fascinating career, very varied. He's a writer, presenter, producer. Things such as Frank Skidder and David Bedeal's hit 90s show, Fantasy Football. He's written... BAFTA award-winning scripts for Harry Hill and created 90 Minutes, the much-loved, much-missed football magazine of the early 90s. We talk about sports radio, the future of podcasts and that sometimes difficult relationship between sponsors, agencies and the creative process. It's good fun. I hope you enjoy it. Great. Paul, thanks a lot for being here. Pleasure, Richard. Yeah, no problem. This afternoon, you've been at the studio. Yep. Who's the guest? We had some good guests today, actually. We had uh, actor John Henshaw. You probably know him from Early Doors. He's in a new film about Bert Troutman, which I recommend, called The Keeper. Uh, we had Owen Morgan on, uh, the Middlesex yes. and England skipper. Um, Irish lad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on good form. We've had, uh, yeah, we had a good, pretty decent lineup this afternoon. There were more. I'm trying to desperately. Oh, yeah, you Tom about Lucy, Arsenal supporting comedian as well. But Troutman's broken neck must have come up, surely. It does, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think the film's about more than that. But yeah, you, you can't talk about <laughs> Bert without having his, talking about his broken neck. Surely you're, you're yeah. waiting in the conversation for that to come up, aren't it's you? It's very much his yeah. trademark. Yeah. yeah. All the other Bert Troutman yeah. anecdotes, they sort of pale, don't they? Yeah, yada, yada, Bert. Yeah. You were a confirmed Nazi. You're a prisoner of war. You escaped the Russians. You escaped the Americans, uh, but tell us about your broken neck. The guy's got actually an amazing life. It's a fascinating story, and, and really the broken neck should be about tenth on the list when you talk about that. And, and yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's just talk. Uh, well, obviously, I, we all know you from Hawksby and Jacobs' um, show in the afternoons since 2000. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, we started doing a, just a kind of Friday night show, and, and it became a regular thing just around, yeah, about the end of two, yeah, 2000. Um, the question, I guess, is what was it like then and has it changed? <laughs> Fundamentally, I'd say it's it's pretty much the same. It's still kind of me and Andy. The show has developed kind of over the years, but effectively it's about our relationships. We were we were mates before. We've not been ch- known each other that long. We didn't, really didn't work with each other until 1998 when we were uh, both working on uh, fantasy. I came on board on fantasy football with Skinner and Badil to do the Fantasy World Cup, the live series which was a show a day for four weeks which was uh, pretty heavy going but I came in as the kind of football producer pulling all that together working with uh, the guys on the Phoenix from the Flames and kind of just helping out on the creative side and putting a lot of the things together on the football front like even sourcing uh, coming up going out and quite enjoyed sourcing all the kits 
for the Phoenixes. We did one with a famous moment in the game between Zaire and Brazil where a guy called Alunga Mawepu <laughs> runs out of the wall when yeah. the whistle's blown, kicks the ball 74. up the upper end. And get, that's right, and gets booked. And Alunga Mawepu came over. Uh, and, uh, of course, you want to try and find a Zaire kit by 1998. And uh, Toffs, they, kind of, they didn't have them. So we had to get them some run-up. In uh, in this place somewhere, so it was it was quite exciting to do bits and pieces like that. Because that that's a that's a, a, a show. It was obviously a cult show. Yeah, that the bookings on there were, were pretty random, weren't they? I mean, I don't know. You had I remember Mario Kempes, Phoenix from the Flames. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Th- there was well, I mean, obviously David and Frank would think of a a great iconic moment from the world of football, and if something could kind of spark them comedically, they would work that idea up. Um, and then once they felt they had, I think it was a bit, I mean, I didn't work on the early shows, but from what Andy tells me, sometimes it would be, we've got this great idea for a Mario Kempes one, for example, could we get him? And other times it will be, we've got Mario Kempes, he's prepared to come over and do one, so now what do we do with it? In that case, uh, Andy tells me, a lot of what his job was, he's obviously my uh, co-presenter on TalkSport, a lot of his job was talking people into doing it. Mario Kempes turned up, to do the Phoenix, and he clearly not read the script. <laughs> so uh, part of it was to him for him to dress up as Super Mario, <laughs> and he said to him, "Well, I'm not doing this. You know, I just this was the greatest moment of my life. This was my country winning the World Cup in Argentina. I'm not prattling about in this stupid suit, <laughs> but a lot of job." And he said, "It's important. It'll be funny. You'll come out of it very well." And he tend to kind of smooth the way. So. Having worked on some of the other Phoenixes in the World Cup, there was one with Steve Hodge, the old England player, and he'd ended up in the Swedish TV coverage the day <laughs> Terry Butcher cut his head open and got covered in blood. And he was working for, for Swedish TV. And um, he came along, he said, oh, I've been looking to do a bit more media. And I thought, well, he <laughs> clearly hasn't read the script. I don't know what he thinks this is, because his role in it was to be covered <laughs> in a bucket of fake blood. And that was it. <laughs> he stood there in a kind of loud jumper and was covered in uh, fake blood. So... Um, not quite sort of 15 minutes punditry. David Platt? Yeah, David Platt did one in Genoa, Andy tells me. And again, I don't think David had read the script because the whole kind of premise of it was that they'd mistaken him for David Pleat and he had to <laughs> prance around like the old Luton manager in a pair of kind of loafers and a, and a light suit. And I think he was quite taken back by that. Um, but again, Andy had to get in there and sort of smooth the way. Take a, So, fantasy football... Mm. Um, I want to talk about Harry Hill in a minute because you've, you've um, obviously writing for Harry Hill later on. Take me back to 90 minutes. What was around about that? Because Italian 90 is a sort of interesting moment. You've got yeah. football, the cliche almost it's become. The story is that, that football and lad culture and, and it just became a middle-class game, fever pitch, Nick Hornby. You were in amongst that. 90 minutes was, I really remember 90 minutes quite clearly, but yeah. just give us... Give us a, a sort of insight into well, where you were there. So we had a guy called Dan Goldstein, and we'd written some football stuff in sort of magazines, or we did a couple of one-shots together around the European Championship in 98. And we'd go and have a beer. We were mates. We'd known each other a long time. And we'd go and have a beer sometimes, and we'd say, there's nothing really between kind of shoot and match at the very young end and when Saturday comes, you know, which was kind of fanzine. What if you took the kind of spirit of that, a bit of slightly edgier style, uh, in terms of the writing and funnier. Um, but you kind of sort of pitched it. It was a kind of an adult mainstream uh, magazine. And we launched it in April 1990. We kind of did it in his back room in Blackheath. And we launched this magazine onto the market. And I think had the old Gazza's tears and the game against Germany and getting to the semi-final not happened, 
um, I think we wouldn't have survived. It, it, it kind of meant that we carried on as a publication after that and kind of we saw our sales pick up. And then Dennis Publishing uh, got involved and they, they took it off of us. They, they took it on and funded it properly because it was, you know, it was two guys in a back room. It was a mad idea. I don't think I would ever do that now. It was a crazy idea to start a, a magazine from scratch. It was the start of... The desktop publishing, really. It was the only yeah. way we could have done it. It was the first time we, had, we, were st- we were working with Max. And so it was kind of very early on in those days, laying out the pages and almost right into space. It was, it was kind of from that point of view, it was probably one of the first magazines that was being written like that and put together like that. But um, we got help and it became something different then. Under Dennis and then ultimately IPC magazines who took it on. We decided to kind of try and make it a sort of. We we had some uh, sound staff, people that loved. We'd all like smash hits. We could see it, yeah. how that works on two levels, and we wanted ninety minutes to have a bit of the spirit of that. So that's the way it went, and you know that kind of continued to about nineteen ninety seven. But it was a kind of victim of its own success, really. Ninety minutes because from that the, the, the newspapers all did kind of fixture pull outs and yeah. and there was funny stuff in a lot of the broadsheets and then you kind of lost your USP people didn't have to come to a weekly magazine they could get it for free in the game or, or, or stuff like that so uh, or even in the tabloids in the sun that they all did pull out so it kind of did for a weekly adult football magazine if you're or kind of older teenager and it's, it's almost um, that period obviously pre-internet you know oh yeah, yeah. and now we would just jump on YouTube or we would jump on the internet, find clips. There are clips everywhere. You know, you're a wash sure. on Twitter, and then you. But then you're really seeking out quirky material or just interesting, funny stuff to write about, which was which was must yeah. have been a completely different game. Yeah, at that it point. was. It was. I mean, there was yeah, there was no, there was there was absolutely no internet. There was nowhere to go. Well, there was you know very sort of the late days of uh, ninety minutes. There were. But yeah, you, you know, however you source the stories, uh, you would have to go and find them yourself. You'd have to go and do the groundwork an awful lot of the time. But yeah, there was there was no help from social media or anything like that to draw to drive people to that. Which a lot of magazines do these days. Of course, they have a kind of parallel life online. It's almost like a um, you can see that coming back as a sort of you know that feeling of of being un, you know underground. Uh, just a, the fanzine sort of aesthetic yeah. to it. Well, some still survive. I mean, some still survive, which is great. And I think people still, are, you know, it's something like I, you know, I get private eye every couple of weeks, and I've got private eye for about twenty odd years, and I, I wouldn't even dream of cancelling the subscription or whatever they do on the cover. But because it's kind of part of my life, and I think that's true of people who buy when Saturday comes. You know, it doesn't matter that you know that basically that other media have overtaken it. That's still important to you. That's like a sort of, it's almost like that club feel. I mean, it, I, I'm just wondering, without being, you know, too obvious, you sort of jump forward into your radio career and now are you sort of looking and, and trying to engender that sort of relationship with your readers? Is that something that you're looking at? It's more difficult in a commercial animal like Talk Sport, yeah, I guess. I think we've, yeah, I think, I think on the, the radio front, we've tried to give it, I mean, you, you've got to be so careful. You can't make it, you, you have to make it inclusive. You have to have people joining you at times who don't know that what the heck is going on. You can't make it too clubby. Although we, we used to have this thing on, uh, uh, a phrase we used to have on 90 Minutes, which sounds a bit arrogant, but we decided it was kind of keep up or fuck off, really. <laughs> it was like, you're writing it for yourself. <laughs> yeah. And you'd say, you know, we, we want the readers to go along with us, but we've got to be true to ourselves first because that's when it'll be funnier and the writing will be better. And there is a little bit of that in the radio show. You know, we kind of... 
But having said that, we had this quite strict policy on 90 Minutes where we would think about what our kind of youngest end of our readership was. And we could say, okay, what was the first cup final that they could remember? And we would set ourselves and say, okay, they're this age and that's the first cup final. And anything before that, we would explain. So we wouldn't just say Bobby Charlton. We'd say Manchester United and England legend or whatever. We'd give a bit of context to what we talked about. So we'd... So having said what I said before, I think we had always had an eye on the fact that you, you, know, you didn't want to patronise, but by the same token, you didn't want people to think, well, who's that? I've got no idea who you're talking about. It's quite difficult if you're writing jokes. Context can kill jokes, can't it? The, the, the amount of information yeah. you have to give Exactly, over, give no, that's over. very true. So that's why you have to have that, that attitude of they'll go with this or they won't. They won't get everything, but maybe they'll, they'll look into why they didn't. I think we all do that, don't we? We hit something, you'll hear something, you know it makes you laugh, but you won't maybe get the whole context of it. But sometimes you'll go and search out why that was. The, what's interesting about your career, I mean, there's lots of things, but just the different types of writing that you've done. Hmm. You go back to two Ronnies, sketches, yeah. radio. I sent some, I was uh, with a mate of mine, we just sent some quick, some kind of quickie one-liners into Spitting Image. And they kind of wrote back and were kind of pretty supportive. They were really... There was two guys called Rob Grant and Doug Naylor who went on to write Red Dwarf. And uh, they were the script editors on Spitting Image. And they were really supportive of us. You know, they were... I mean, they were getting a lot, probably a lot of non-commissioned stuff, but kind of, you know, put a kind of metaphorical arm around our shoulder and and gave us some guidance and said, that doesn't work because they didn't just reject them and send them back. So I'll always be very grateful to them. I think they'd been in that situation as young writers as well when they started out in Manchester. And I think everybody needs that. Doesn't matter what business you work in, you just need because we probably, you know, we, if we just got straight rejection letters, we're just a couple of nobody's really just sending in gags we thought were funny. And if they'd come back and said not for us, we may not have done it again, but it was only that they said you were quite like that. Work that up. That doesn't quite work. This is why it doesn't work. And and they were snowed under. They were doing a weekly show that to go out it was almost being recorded live in some cases. So it was, uh, if that makes sense. But they were kind of recording ten minutes up to be uh, ten o'clock at night on a Sunday. So it was a really fraught job. But they took time out. So I've I've always tried, if I could, if I can, to kind of be supportive of people if they ask for a bit of help uh, along the way as well. What's the, what was the sort of first? writer's room you were in uh, the first one was weekending which was a kind of old radio four show it's a, a show that a lot of people cut their teeth yes, on lots and lots of radio and tv writers because they they it was the only show you didn't need a commission they used to have a friday meeting where you'd all go into friday lunchtime you'd all go into this room uh with the producer was it thursday was it the thursday meeting anyway you go in and there'd be just a lot of people and they'd say, okay, the producer would say, right, a big story this week about uh, the Prime Minister. What angles have you got on that? Has anybody got a funny idea about this? And then you kind of pitch the idea and the producer would say, yeah, that's good. So, um, go, go away, go and have a pint, go and have a coffee and send that to me or come back with it in an hour's time. It was obviously no way of emailing it then. <laughs> so, so you'd have to physically go back to the Beeb and say, can you give this to uh, the producer? And, and that was it. And so you'd hope, and then you'd listen out on a Friday night to see if it got on. Once you'd been a few times and you got to know the producer, he'd often say, yeah, we like that gag. It's going to be on the show tomorrow night. Then you'd listen on a Friday night. And that, 
really excited, I should think. Yeah, I mean, I remember the first time you like the music was uh, Party Fears to the Associates, and that was the, the theme music to the show. So I remember first time you get something on, yeah, I mean, you'd have a great cast. Yeah, Alison Stedman was involved in it. A guy called Chris, uh, was Chris Emmett used to do it. John Glover, June Whitfield used to do wow. it as well. Used to get, I think she she ended up doing weekending at times as well as Hardline. So you'd have kind of good people doing the stuff. So. Yeah, it was a real buzz. First time we ever got anything on, uh, and on Spitting Image as well. And and the sort of lessons you're getting from that experience, presumably, you're sort of there's the comedy and the funny stuff, mm -hmm. the writing. But yeah. There's also the pitching, and you've got to sell yourself in that yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, you do. You, we uh, we had a we had a sitcom on Radio Two. We had some pilots we worked up for Radio Four that didn't go to series. So yeah, you get used to. I mean, I did that because I was I worked in TV development with Andy for a couple of years. I was making stuff as well, producing stuff, but um, we were also going in and pitching ideas to uh, to TV companies. And it, it used to be a bit of a frustrating process because you'd get, you'd get in front of producers who loved it and then you'd get in front of the controller and sometimes it'd be internal politics. Sometimes it would be they just didn't get it. I remember once we took an idea right to the top of the, of the kind of BBC comedy department and so everybody said, this is great. This, it, yeah, they're going to love this, don't worry. What was the you idea? You get in front. Do you well, remember? Uh, it, it, was, it was an idea we worked up with uh, Simon Day and uh, as his character, Tommy Cockles. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it was a kind of, it was Tommy uh, as a kind of old school, it was an old school game show, a bit like these old shows used to get in the 60s. So Tommy's presenting it but it's a kind of young, sort of cutting-edge <laughs> contestants. Yeah. So you've got Tom as a bit of a... Tom is a bit of a man out of time. And we worked it out quite well, and we thought it was a great idea, but, you know, we had a lot of support for it from all the comedy department, but when it gets in front of the controller, they kind of pull the rug from under you. So it, it can be a very... It still is. I mean, it's worse than it ever was, actually. I, I've got friends who've still got production companies, and I know it's a, a long-winded, uh, frustrating business even with a lot of clout behind you and a track record. So. Um, Tommy Cockles and Harry Hill mm. are in my sort of, I would say, top three to five funniest stand-ups, right. I think, live. Yeah. And you've written for two of them. Well, I didn't, I didn't really write for Simon. We were working up the idea. Simon was going, I mean, I think it would have come to that, but Simon kind of generates all that stuff himself. But I love him. I agree with you. I think he's, I think he's a genius character. I wish he'd do it more, actually. He's, he's kind of... He's uh, he's kind of semi-retired him, but he's he does think he does it once every year at Christmas. But he's a brilliant character. Um, Harry Hill, how did that get, how did that start? Um, because I'd worked for Avalon uh, TV, and Harry was with them at the time. He was uh, they were his agents. Um, Harry had sat in for Gary Bushell, who was the Sun's TV columnist, and and had done his TV column when Gary had been on holiday. And I think off the back of that, Harry and, and Richard Allen Turner, who was his agent then. Felt there was a kind of TV, it could be a kernel of a TV idea in this, if you took that. Taking a little bit, because it worked in the States, there was the E-Soup show, which was a similar sort of thing. I think it was a, TV Burt was different because it was just a lot madder and a lot looser. Um, and so a bit of the spirit of that, a bit of what Harry makes Harry great, the absurd stuff. And Richard thought there was a show in it, so he just said, look, Come and have a chat with Harry. I, I kind of met him a couple of times, but only briefly when he did his Channel 4 show. But I didn't really know him. And um, we kind of worked up this pilot for TV Burp. And it went a bit quiet for a few months. So I really enjoyed work. I like working with him. He's a great, he's a really good guy. He's, a, he's great to work with. And, and he's, he's so funny and brilliant to work with. And, you know, genius, close up when you say Harry does it. He's fantastic. Harry would pull that script together every week. Um, 
So, yeah, we, we got the pilot and then it got a series and it didn't do that well and it got slightly buried, I think, by ITV. You couldn't find a permanent home for it. Uh, and I think at one point they were thinking of uh, knocking it on the head because they just couldn't get the figures. And I think the last show in about series four, they put it on, uh, I can't remember what the time was now, because they'd had it on at 10 o'clock and at 5 o'clock in the evening. It was So anyway, I think it was just 6.15, 6.30, and it got quite a big audience. And they thought, mm, okay, we'll give it one more series. I think that was the kind of way the wind was blowing. And then the next series took off, and you know, kind of a couple of BAFTAs and Golden Rose and a number of comedy awards later, you know, people remember it. But it had a bit of a shaky start. We didn't get, I, I, I think we always felt we got chopped and kind of changed a lot. We didn't really get put in a decent slot well, initially. Quite, I mean, Harry Hill, as you know, as previously said, I, I absolutely love it's, uh, it's strange, yeah, and um, obscure in mm. some cases, and and Actually, then it came. It's ITV primetime. It ended up so yeah. that again, where the creative meets the the business end of you know a yeah. big TV company. That is quite a brave well, decision. To sh- make, yeah, guess. scheduling is really important, you know. And I think you know if you're being shunted around, it's like anything else. If you've got a magazine on the shelves and there's an expectation you're going to find, you know, Cajun Avery Bird on that shelf next to the other magazines. If it's if it's up on the top shelf in a plastic wrapper or down with the football magazines, you're not going to find it, are you? So people have got an idea where they're going to find something, uh, and then they can go and, and then they can go and watch it. I mean, it's different now um, because. Because of kind of iPlayer and uh, you know you can download everything because of Sky Plus etc. It might be different. I think maybe, although I still think in certain cases scheduling is important because there's an awful lot of people. Certainly, if you want big numbers, who are watching TV as it goes out live, and that that is still I think that will that will change as time goes on. But I still think it's quite important to a part of the audience. Let's talk about radio. Yeah. Um, now, podcasts. And we would say this, we're on a podcast. A lot of people saying, predicting um, great things for podcasts. And one of the arguments is that, you know, oh, what about radio? How does that, how does radio impact it on that? Yeah. But live radio is, there's something about it. So yeah. what, what's your take? How do you sort of balance those two things? You can see the arguments for, yeah. for podcasts, but there is something about live radio, presumably. Yeah, there is. I mean, I think they're always, certainly in the, where, where it's kind of maybe news-led, like a sports station or a news station, and it's kind of, uh, kind of fast-moving, I think there'll always be a place for it. Um, I mean, most radio stations still have that element. There's very few that, that are, certainly if they're speech radio, that are just kind of uh, features because yeah, you could take a bunch, you could take a, a bunch of what Radio Four does and just have it available as podcasts and not having going going out live. But if there's a news element to it, if there's a story that can change, and in sport, obviously, you can bring out the best football podcast in the world. But okay, you might bring out three or four hours later, the manager's been sacked, the player's injured, uh, the game's finished, and. The ones you said would win would lose 2-0. So there'll always be a place for that. And I think they kind of complement each other. There's no real reason why one should replace the other. The reason that, you know, Kindle has not completely destroyed the book trade. People still like that. The newspaper industry, despite the fact so much of it has migrated online, newspapers, they're not selling as many, but they still exist. So I, I think there'll always be a place uh, for, for uh, radio as a medium, I think. 
What's it like when a big story breaks on your show, when something happens and you've got yeah. to respond to it? Because you can do all the planning in the world and then, as you say, some, a big name gets sacked or a moment yeah. happens. Well, there's been, there's been two standout ones. One was the day that George Best died um, and we planned a show and George was ill, he was in the hospital. Rodney Marsh worked at our place and he was one of his best friends. So we saw Rod, uh, I mean, we saw Rod in tears the day before so we knew it was kind of quite close to the end. For George, um, but um, he died at five to one, so kind of all bets were off. Really, you you rip up everything you've done, and it, it's kind of, it's completely different dynamic in the office. Everybody's it's like you know if you watch the film broadcast news, it's exactly as you'd imagine. That's what it's like. It's everybody's charging it around, um, trying to do it with as much sensitivity as possible. Um, but you you want people to pay tribute. You talk about it yourselves. Um, uh, I mean, I remember, I think Dennis Law would be one of the last people to see him. And we'd had Dennis on the show a, a two or three months before, talking about his book, maybe a year before. He's, he'd been uh, fantastic on the show. And we managed to get hold of Dennis about half an hour after he died, in kind of in, in quality. I think he was still outside the hospital and he was talking to United fans who'd started to congregate there. So that was, that was I mean, they're, they're kind of really tiring shows when you're finished. They're quite emotionally draining because yeah. you're dealing with something very very sad ultimately and quite poignant. The other one was uh, was very different. Um, uh, Richard Keyes and Andy Gray, you probably remember when they got yeah. sacked from Sky. Um, and uh, our controller at the time said to us at quarter past 12, uh, we're on at one, uh, Richard Keyes is coming in and he's going to be live with you at one o'clock to give his side of the story. So we put the word out there and it was kind of pretty huge it was a massive news story it was it was on it was on uh, you know news at 10 on the bbc news they used quite a lot of the interview that was quite a responsibility um and we tried to get that balance of we, we didn't want to you know it, it, if you're going to pr- take that moral high ground and absolutely hammer him um he, i think he would have clammed up i think our our feeling was that he had a lot of stuff to get off his chest and we kind of prompted him to do that and it did make for some pretty amazing radio because he was obviously quite upset about what had happened and talking about dark forces at work and stuff. And, you know, there were times we said, surely, Richard, you can't be, you know, you won't be... Pr-. No, I'm not proud of that, but... And he would give his side of the story. So it was... That was quite... That was quite a nerve-wracking uh, example. That's the sort of thing that can happen, though. You know, all bets can be off. Halfway through a show, something can happen, you know. Um... And it is, because some of these people you know, when Peter Osgood died, Peter was a kind of friend of the show, had been in a few times, uh, and we were up in Leicester doing an outside broadcast, and we were talking to Alan Birchinall, who's one of his old Chelsea teammates. The moment it broke, they just somebody said to us, Ozzy's died, it's uh, horrible. You know, you've got to kind of carry on. And, and then it becomes a very different show. You know, you know that's it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people dying. You know, well, you know, sort of they're <laughs> the sort... But they are the kind of things that, you know, if, if a manager gets sacked, I mean, t- t- basically, no one's died. A manager gets sacked, yeah. and then you, that's not a massive... Okay, it's a shame. What a shock. Tell us what you think. Get guests on. But when someone's dead, when they're kind of iconic characters, uh, somebody from sport or something, uh, then it does become a completely different... I mean, we, we ask about on our show. It's a, effectively a kind of light-hearted show. So you have to completely change the mood of everything you do. You're almost like becoming... There's that sort of journalistic element, like you say. Yeah, it becomes something else. Yeah. I mean, anything. I mean, the afternoon, that the full extent after David Cameron 
1215, stood up and gave the full extent of the lies that have been told around uh, Hillsborough. And we said, well, this, this is huge. This is a huge, this is appalling. So the, the, the show became a three hours of that. It became a very different show. It was just journalistic hats on and speaking to people and just getting reaction to it. So, so yeah, I mean, I think some, that's, that's the nature of, of what can happen. That, um, there was a time in the early days it was felt... I mean, when 9-11 happened, we were taken off air. And I know during the Gulf War, Danny Baker went off air. And there are certain times when what you do is yeah. not right. It's not completely right. But when it, breaks, when it breaks live and it's not on a kind of rolling news agenda, you know, I, I, I kind of back us to be able to to do that and not, you know, not make it crass and be able to do a good job with it. Yeah, yeah. There's a, um, just in terms of the, the, just changing gears for a sec, just talking about the commercial bit, because mm. a lot of people listening will be on, you know, working for sponsors or yeah. be working for agencies and you're at the sharp end. You get quite often um, presented with ideas. Just take, talk us through how yeah. that works. You've got a sponsor wanting to attach themselves to you and to the, the show and the, and the platform. Um, and they want to do it in an entertaining way, presumably. Mm -hmm. But where, how does that work, and when does it work, and when it doesn't it? Uh, my, I always kind of felt, even on magazines, when we used to get people and getting involved in 90 minutes and sponsorship in 90 minutes, there would be the sales and promotions department, whether it's in magazines uh, or, in, uh, or in radio, and they'll obviously be talking to the client, and they'll be making certain promises and saying, oh, yeah, they'll definitely do that, they'll definitely do that. And then they would often come to you and say, well, we've told them they can do that. And we'd say, well, that's not practical um, or it's not a particularly good idea. It won't do them any favours. So I always said uh, from the very early days on 90 Minutes, and I still do in radio, talk to us. Tell, tell us before you say they can have it, say, I'll go and talk to the presenters. And I'd say, we're really happy to talk to sponsors. I mean, I know not all presenters do that, I think it improves our content. I think if we can come up and buy into an idea, it's better for us because it's much better content and it's not a bolt-on to the show that we feel we just want to get out the way. Uh, and it's much better for them because, you know, it's, it's an integral part of the show. It doesn't feel like advertising. And I'd say the best example we've had in recent years was with Yorkshire Tea. They came on board and they really worked it well, they had the mentions. You get the basic mentions, the, the recognition, this Hawksby and Jacobs with Yorkshire Tea and whatever the cell line was at the time. They're big into sport. They're big into cricket especially. Yeah. And so we decided, they, they came to us with this idea of doing a, a cricket tea. And we said, that's brilliant. And they said, well, you can use some of our ambassadors. There might be other cricket guests that you can bring in. Uh, and they were getting a little kind of fee for that. Or they had a book to promote. It may have been, like, I think Ian Bell had his book out. So he was kind of happy to come on. But that was a read. Yeah, it was yeah, well, he's good lad actually. Yeah, so we were, so we were, um, yeah, we um, we did a half an hour cricket tea. We'd take photographs of it. We had one of those kind of things you get the old cricket, the old multi layered thing, sandwiches on the bot, the top tray, cakes, you know, etc., etc. And we'd kind of pour the Yorkshire tea in the mugs. And Freddie Flintoff came in, and I think Kevin Peterson came in, and we just do uh, an interview um, for half an hour. Some of it cricket related, some of it not. And it was it was kind of it was good content. We were getting great guests to have a good conversation with, and they were getting a kind of good sponsorship opportunity that was quite quirky and quite different. And that all kind of came about from a bit of a dialogue. But so often sponsors come in and they say, "Yeah, we want to do this," and then but they don't work it hard enough. They're not creative enough. Um, 
And I think that's the thing, to have good creative ideas that complement the show uh, and complement the presenters and think, well, if we did this, would that be good for them? Would that be good for us? And that's, as I said, when we've done it over the years, the best of them. We had one sponsor who said, we'd like you to do an outside broadcast from one of our call centres. And I said, well, where are you? They said, we're on a kind of trading estate somewhere in wherever. I said, well, we'll never get any guests there. I mean, we're just basically going to be doing the same show in a call centre. And I said, well, that doesn't, that's death for us because we can't get, you know, we're not going to get anybody uh, there. And it's not good for you because it will be a pretty terrible show. So sometimes you have to kind of, they think, oh, you'll be, a, but those mentions will still get some very odd ideas at times. But generally, you know, we'll let them down gently. We'll say, look, why don't we do it like this or why don't we do it like that? And they won't always want to do that. But, you know, I, I, I'm quite happy to be involved. So, just to put it, 20 years you've been doing, nearly? Ne 20 years yeah, next year? Yeah, it's going to be, a, hopefully, yeah, an anniversary, not, will there? Or? Possibly, yeah, yeah. I think we haven't, we haven't thought about anything. Yes, if we're still there. If selected, o as Open-top bus ride, surely. We don't know if we're still, we're still going to be there. I mean, I think we plan to be. But, um, yeah, I'd I, I still enjoy it. Andy and I have always worked on the premise that all the time that, it, you know, you, you meet different people every day. The game changes or sport changes every day. If we're the time, we can still be hopefully funny about it and interesting about it and engaging about it. They want us to keep doing it. We still enjoy it. There's been a few times over the years when the kind of was doing more writing. I was thinking, I can't balance these two things out because Bert really was kind of a full-time job and it was a bit of a slog. But, um, you know, if I've always been able to balance the two, find a way to balance the two, work my day out so I can balance the, the two kind of different roles. So... All the time I can still do that because I still kind of write when I, when I can. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep on keeping on if I can. Another 20 years in you, I reckon? Well, yeah, God blimey. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> sitting there like that then. Walks <laughs> being Jacobs. Young Brooklyn Beckham, the New England captain. It'll be one of them, wouldn't Spur it? Really? Spurs still waiting yeah, for a trophy. Spurs will be still waiting for a trophy, of course. They As a fellow Spurs fan, I can say that. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Really enjoyed That's that, mate. That's a pleasure, Richard. No problem. Cheers. <laughs>